0: Put a hand on the shoulder of somebody standing next to you, and have your prayer—really dangerous prayer. Ready? Here you go. One word. More. That's it. Just go with that. That's <laughs> Ooh, Jesus. <Yes. laughs> Wreck us, good God, with your glory. Wow. Saturate us in a revelation of your love, God. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, one more time. Just breathe that word out. Just more, Lord. More, Lord. More, Lord. God, we're not asking for more from a place of lack. We've tasted, we've seen your goodness. It's given us an appetite, God, for all of you, all the time, never ending. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Overflow from within us. Thank you, Lord. All right, let's hug somebody and have a seat. Uh Somebody needs to give you a hug, right? Right. The grand finale. I'm going to borrow this thing. Wow, that's heavy. That'll work. So I'm going to borrow this dry erase board tonight. We're going to do a cool study. Uh, You know, um, God's word doesn't limit his goodness. This is an important point to know. If I get somebody to help me bring that over here. Um, God's word, it doesn't create the limitation for his goodness. So often when we, when we as people declare what we're going to do, it becomes kind of like the high point, the limitation. Yeah. That's evil. bring <laughs> you a plate and a knife and you scratch on that knife. <laughs> So, uh, so often the way that humanity works is that we, uh, we make a declaration and we say a thing and that becomes kind of our limit. That's as far as we're willing to go. You understand that God's word does not create limits on his goodness, what it does is it creates an open doorway of invitation to a possibility that actually he can go beyond in his actions the word that he speaks. I'm going to explain how this works. For example, um, Jesus makes a uh, here's 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 one. He says, If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father, right? Everybody read that and looked looked at that and went, Ooh, ooh, scary. Except, what did Peter do? He denied Jesus. Not once, not twice, three times. He's a triple denier. Well, now, if the word of God in Christ spoken over Peter is like, hey, you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my fathers. He said that over us. Oh, my goodness, I want to make sure I don't deny him. Then Peter goes and does that very thing, violates that word three times. And Jesus, what does he do to Peter? He doesn't deny him before the father. He actually redeems and restores him and, and sets him in a place where he actually puts him in charge of, of the church. The body of Christ is going to change the world. He gives the keys of the church to a triple denier. In other words, Christ can actually make a declaration and then move to step beyond what he's just said to actually show himself and his actions to be better than what he's just spoken. So his word is not just a limitation. It's not a ceiling or a limit to his goodness. It's actually a doorway into unlimited possibilities. It's kind of like a pointing of, take a look, this is, this is the potential of what could happen, but you know, I'm not limited by that. I can actually go beyond that. Because I'm Jesus, I can do anything, right? That's the way he works. It's like, you deny me before men; I'll deny you before my father. Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. It's an interesting thing that Jesus says about Peter. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. If I'm, if I'm Peter, I'd be like, you said no, right? Because we're friends. You got my back, right? And Jesus' response is, I'm going to pray for you. Which is what people usually say when they're like, yeah, I've given up hope. <laughs> Not everybody, nobody in this room, but most Christians are like, yeah, yeah I'll pray for you. <laughs> well, that's a lost cause. You know, things like that. <laughs> G- Jesus looks at Peter and goes, I'm going to pray for you. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. It's an interesting two-part phrase there. When you return speaks of restoration. Strengthen your brothers implies that you have to have some influence in their life, which implies leadership. So Jesus looks at Peter. He hasn't even fallen yet. He hasn't even done any denying yet, and Jesus looks at him and sees a restored leader before Peter has even fallen. <laughs> it's so interesting. You think that your, your ability to backslide is more powerful than God's ability to redeem you from it. Come on. Are we more powerful than the love of God? Are, seriously? <laughs> See, you just got to know how saved you are. You're more saved than you think. But Bill, the Bible says narrow is the way that leads to, destru- or the, to life. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. The Bible says life and death are in the power of the tongue. It's not a diatribe on the afterlife. The entirety of the chapter is on giving and releasing grace. You know what Jesus is saying? The vast majority default to a, a, a mindset where they're speaking and releasing destruction and judgment over each other. Very few people will come into harmony with my word to actually let their tongue speak what I'm saying and release life over people. It'd be nice if you'd be part of the few. The finality of the Bible is when in Revelation, the end of Revelation says, and the spirit and the bride say come. You know how this whole thing ends up? When the bride and the Holy Spirit actually start saying the same thing. We could just go home on that. Amen. <laughs> so we, we get like so scared and freaked out about so many things in the Bible. It's like, whoa, everything's just, oh, it freaks me out. It's a warning. God is love. Perfect love casts out fear. If you ever read anything or hear anything that God speaks to you that brings you into partnership with the spirit of fear, you misunderstood what love said. He said to you in John fifteen 11, I'm speaking to you so that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. In other words, if you understood what I was saying, you'd be in a really good mood. We take so much of what God says, and so much of what Jesus says, and we take it as an ultimatum when it's actually an invitation to a celebration. <laughs> it is. It's such a big deal that we catch this. So I want to talk about identity tonight. It's a, it's a life message for me, and I'm just going to hit it from another aspect. Of, and and um, this is, some of this is going to be really, really fresh. Um, some of this is fun, new, new stuff for me. Some of this is old, some of this is new, and we'll just kind of mix it all together, mash it up, and see where it comes out. Uh, throughout the course of the scriptures, God has been trying to unveil to us who we really are. And uh, uh, there, there's a, uh, the story of the Old Testament law. Uh, actually, uh, it, it, it unveils. And I, I can't do this justice tonight, so I'm going to leave so much of this out. So understand, if, if I'm missing a major part of this for you, I know I'm doing it. But there's a place I want to get to, and if you just kind of ride this out with me, you'll, you'll see where we're going. In Exodus chapter 19... Israel is coming out of the, uh, the, the Egyptian bondage. They spent 430 years being slaves in Egypt. They come to the Mount Sinai... It takes them three months to get there. They grumble and complain. They murmur and gripe and all this stuff. And God just lightly rebukes them, corrects them, puts them on a course correction. But there's no punishment. He's bringing them to a moment of time. In Exodus chapter 19 is the story of Israel coming to the base of the mountain. And God basically is saying to them in Exodus 19, he goes, see what I did to the Egyptians. I bore you on eagles' wings to bring you unto myself... As a kingdom of priests, for all the earth is mine. So the idea is this. I have separated you from your oppressors to bring you unto a place of union with me The whole earth belongs to me, but I'm going to start something with you that's actually going to spread to everybody else, right? And he says, and this is how I see you, as a kingdom of priests. So he affirms what he told Abraham when he says, this this is kingship, this is like a a royal identity and authority, and a priesthood. And a word for priest is one who has direct access to God, face-to-face communication with God. And that might seem kind of scary. It's like, wait, no man can see God and live. Yeah, come on, what a way to go. Really? As a matter of fact, David got an invitation from God to do something that the law said he couldn't do, and that was seek my face. Because tradition said you can't see the face of God and live. You wouldn't survive it. David said in Psalm 103, when you said to me, seek my face, my heart said, your face I will seek. In other words, David tips his hand a little bit to a private conversation he had with God where God came to David and goes, hey, David, you know that thing about if you see my face, you'll die? Yeah. Yeah, God. I dare you to seek my face. And David goes, okay. Okay. When you said, seek my face, I said, yes. And that's what God was bringing the children of Israel to in Exodus 19. He was bringing them to the mountain for the purpose of unveiling and restoring to them the reality of who they were, their identity, to to let them know that you are carrying on the covenant I made with Abraham. Come on, you guys are my kids. And, and, And he gives them an invitation. It's a beautiful invitation to come in as a kingdom of priests. And they go, yes, we'll do that. And then, he says, here's a real simple stipulation. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, after three days, come to the base of the mountain. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, it's in the middle of verse 13 of Exodus chapter 19. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, it says, come up the mountain. And the word for come up is Allah, which means to climb. In other words, climb the mountain. There's a place you're going to meet with God. It's that part where the cloud descends. And the only guy that goes into the cloud is a guy named Moses. And uh, the children of Israel stand there, and and in verse thirteen and verse nineteen, it goes on and on. It says the trumpet sounded, long blast of the trumpet, and nobody moves, nobody goes anywhere. As a matter of fact, they held back and they trembled, they got scared. And uh, and what ends up happening is the the trumpet gets louder and louder and louder, and eventually it becomes, becomes really apparent these guys aren't they aren't coming, they're not responding. They're so afraid of God. Why? Because they were so slave-minded. After 430 years in captivity and slavery, the slave-minded mentality had so overtaken them that they didn't know the Father was good. So the lesson of the mountain there is, is simply this, that if you don't have a revelation of the goodness of God, the fear of the Lord will actually keep you from encountering and experiencing the presence of the Lord. You have to have a revelation that he's good. And when you know that He's good, man, it can be like terrifying right in front of you. But it'll be like Hosea three five, where it says, "In that presence of the Lord, a nation will come trembling to the Lord and His goodness in the last days." So that's the goodness that God is unveiling on the world. Is something we haven't seen yet. And so um, we are, we are, we are it. We are. You're actually that. You are meant to put the goodness and the glory of God on display. Am I just melting anybody's brain already yet here, or should we just like we'll just keep going? We're scratching the surface. All right. So. So, uh, so in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 19 and 20, there's an interesting part where the children of Israel say to Moses, say, don't let God speak to us anymore. Don't let him talk to us. We don't want to hear his voice anymore. You, yeah, terrible idea. You go talk to God. They say, you talk, Moses, you go talk to God. Then you come back to us and you tell us what he said. And that's how we'll have a relationship with God. For the next 1,300 years, God goes silent on a corporate level. As a matter of fact, he speaks to individuals, but he doesn't speak to a crowd again until the moment when Jesus comes up out of the Jordan, being baptized by John the Baptist, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. That is the first time since Mount Sinai that God spoke corporately. So, if you, if you look at the biblical calendar from Adam to Mount Sinai is roughly 2,847 years. Let's write that down here for those of you who are taking notes. 2,847 years. From, from Mount Sinai to the cross is 1,300 years and from the cross till now is 2,000 plus. So, There's this big gap of time right in the middle of human history of 1,300 years where mankind, humanity, rejected the union, that union relationship that that probably would have been the greatest worship service the earth has ever seen on Mount Sinai. They rejected that. And what they did is they actually swapped out one covenant for another. They swapped out a thing called Grant Covenant uh, for a thing called Kinship Covenant. I don't have time to go into that study right now, but they spent 1,300 years under a kinship covenant relationship with God, and the kinship covenant essentially says that the other person in the covenant is my punisher if I do something wrong. It's a bad idea to get into that kind of a relationship with God because he never does anything wrong, and so legally for 1,300 years, the children of Israel made God their punisher every time they messed up. That's the way that kinship covenant works. People say, "Well, so wait—the the the law wasn't God's uh, uh, plan A." No, of course not. As a matter of fact, Galatians three tells us that the law doesn't even have the ability to nullify a covenant. It's a fascinating thing because. Paul, who understands the law better than anybody else, you know, in his day, says there's a differentiation between the covenant, that's what God gave to Abraham, and the law, which he gave to Moses, a temporal system by which he could have relationship with his people for 1,300 years in a sense of disobedience, where they just wanted the status quo with the nations around them. They didn't actually want a literal relationship with God. Well, during this 1,300 years, God's not giving up on these people. He wants to have relationship with these people. They don't want to be in his presence. Fine, he says, I'll invade their presence. So the first time in all of history, first and only time God has allowed himself to be put in a box is this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a fascinating piece of furniture It's got all these, these are cherubim, by the way, up here, um, wings toward the center. Um, So it's got all these fascinating bits and pieces to it. I'm going to go through the ark a little bit because it's a really interesting object, and it it teaches us a fascinating lesson actually about us. Um, The ark, the word for ark, by the way, is the Hebrew word eron, A-H-R-O-N, for transliteration purposes. It's a little academic tonight, so I know, but it won't always be that way. Just follow with me. It just means container. That's it. That's all it was. Just a box. And the bottom of the box was wooden covered with gold, but the top actually was solid gold. And God actually condescends to allow himself to be put in a box. So geographically for over the next it's supposed to be the thirteen hundred years, but the ark disappears somewhere after the Babylonian captivity. So it only shows up for about half of that period. And so the ark uh, is this geographical location where the manifest presence of the glory of God actually showed up on earth. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. So the children of Israel who don't want to hear the voice of God, they actually have an encounter with the presence of God that they can see 24-7. When the cloud of the fire moves, they go with it. That's kind of cool when you think about it, right? Um, The ark contains some stuff. Eventually, they start putting some stuff inside of it. And uh, this will represent a jar. And the jar had manna in it. Now, the manna in the wilderness was the way that God gave them divine provision, supernatural divine provision for the children of Israel in the wilderness. Um, they, They wake up in the morning, and here is this manna on the ground. And the thing about it is, is for 40 years... Uh, they have this daily supernatural sustenance. I mean, they, they, they can't save it up. They can't, like, uh, put it in the bank. It, it just, it, it would go bad. You just can't. And so when they got tired of manna, they cried out to God, and God sends quail. So you have quail and manna for 40 years. Kind of a limited buffet, but nonetheless, they didn't have to pay for it. It just showed up every day. It's like catering every single day. So So to... To celebrate the divine provision of God, um, they, they took some of that manna and they stuck it in a jar and stick it inside of the ark. The other thing in the ark, and this is going to be kind of crude, but this is a stick with a leaf. And this is Aaron's rod. And Aaron's rod was just a dead walking stick. But one day, boom, the thing sp- sprouts. It, it starts growing leaves. Like, my goodness, this is, it doesn't make any sense. Where's this thing getting life? And what this symbolizes is a culture where you're moving from death to life. Uh, Things that are are dead are now coming to life. And the last bits are the, um, we'll make this, let's see, um, we'll make this like uh, the two tablets. And that's uh, your Ten Commandments, or we'll call that the law. So the law, by the way, um, is is a fascinating uh, thing, the way that the, the, the tablets are made. Why are there two tablets with ten commandments on them? Is it that you know God was using like a really big font, or what's the, no? It's actually two copies of the same thing. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that they were inscribed on both sides, and part of the kinship covenant ceremony is that you made two copies of the covenant. And one person kept one copy and the other person kept the other copy. In this case, God wasn't interested in keeping his copy because he knew what he wrote. So he gave Moses both of them. So you have inside the Ark of the Covenant, you have the jar, you have the rod, and you have the law. But that's not the only part of this that's important. The other element is this part right here. And it's the mercy seat. And this is where the presence of God hung out. And as a matter of fact, this is, this is the place, this, you wouldn't see this stuff in here. This is all hidden in the box. But when you looked at the ark, your eyes would automatically drawn, be drawn to this right here. And I don't think that's by accident. I think that, that it's interesting that he chose to create it like this to constantly remind us that mercy triumphs over judgment, Okay. I think modern religion would like to take the, the law out and put it upon top of the mercy seat as if to say, by keeping the law, that's how we access the mercy of God. But that's not the way this thing works. Mercy is what you would see first. The presence of God upon the ark was powerful, strong. Um, the, the Philistines, for whatever reason, decided they want to steal this thing. And so on a couple of occasions, they, they take the ark and, um, and decide to steal it. Bad idea, Philistines. Terrible, terrible strategy. Um, They put it up in front of of their idol, their fish god, Dagon. And the next morning, boom, fish god's on on the ground in front of the ark, as if it's bowing to the ark. you got to give these Philistines credit. So they like put the thing back up and keep it another day. And the next day, Dagon's back down again. Heads busted off, hands are busted off. What do we do? This thing's like killing our idols, they say. And so uh, they hang on to it a little while longer and then they form like boils in a horrible skin condition and they're dying and they finally look at each other and go, let's get rid of this thing. So they load the ark up on a cart with a couple of you know, giveaway oxen and, uh, and slap the oxen and send them off and the oxen just take off and heading back toward the children of Israel. It's like they're done with this thing. Uh, the ark comes across a city of, uh, of people, see the ark coming, and they're like, whoa, check this out. This is the ark of God. Let's see what's in it. And they lift the lid on the thing, and 50,000 people in the city die. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know what you do with that, but it's like, you just didn't mess with the presence of God back in the day, right? And, and you still don't, but we're under a beautiful period of grace now. It's a really gorgeous time. So here you have this, this thing that is a symbolic, manifest presence of God. How would you carry the ark? Well, they had a couple of poles, one on each side. And I'm going to try to draw a priest here, and we'll see if we can make this look like a, like a priest. So the priest would carry this thing. This isn't going to be to scale, by the way. So, that work? All right. So, the priest carrying this ark, and, uh, uh, and, and so you had four priests carrying the ark. The ark was actually meant to be carried by the people of God. The ark, meaning the presence of God, the place where the glory of God dwelt, was actually meant to be carried upon the shoulders of priests who had face-to-face, face-to-face access with him. So uh, beautiful, beautiful pictures. So I'm only going to draw one priest. We're so going to need some room to write on this side over here. The Ark was. Uh, by the way, where's the Ark now? Anybody know? Indiana Jones says it's. You wanted me to bring that up, right? Yeah, I can tell you where the I can tell you where the the replica Ark from the movie is. It's actually in a gigantic warehouse in Orlando, and i have seen it. It's very cool. <laughs> Yeah, it's awesome. I wanted to. I, I mean, it was. It was anyway. My my daughter is a costume designer for Disney, and so she has access to like all this amazing stuff and archives. And she says, "Dad, I saw the ark the other day." It's like so we got a chance to take a look at it. Is that it's an MGM, or where is that? It, it the the ride that it was in at MGM closed down, and the actual ark from the film was part of that exhibit, and they took it and put it in a place called the vault. So it's just like in the movie. It's like down, you know, the guy on the you know crating the thing up and putting it away so it'll come out again eventually i want it actually i want the replica because it's so cool i want it i just do where's the real ark uh revelation you said carl pointed up revelation eleven nineteen 19 says that john sees the throne room of god and he sees looks all around the throne room of god and in there is the ark of the covenant so the ark's not on Earth anymore. Thank, thankfully, that's a good thing because I mean, come on, imagine if the ark of the covenant was still here on Earth. I mean, you know what we would do with that? We 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 would create a theme park around that. You know, we put a little, we'd charge people to. See. I mean, I know that. We I live in Florida, Disney World. I know what we would do with the ark. You know, the ark roller coaster, and I mean, it'd be it'd be crazy. So, isn't it amazing that God has left us with no artifacts that we can worship? The most famous human being in all of history, Jesus, spends 33 years on earth and leaves us with not a single artifact that we can worship. I just think that's cool. And it's a very good thing that we don't have access to this thing now. Um, uh, uh, On top, above the ark, this is going to be just kind of a crude representation of the Shekinah glory of God. It's the presence of God geographically hovers over, rests upon this thing called the ark, the container that carried the presence of God. When Jesus shows up on the scene, Jesus actually becomes a living embodiment of this. Think about it. Yeah, he's the bread of life, right? But also divine provision flows through Christ. The disciples one day say, hey, um, we need to pay our taxes. And Jesus goes, go fishing. And they catch enough money in a fish's mouth to pay the bills. Divine provision just flowed everywhere he went. People say, well, Jesus was broke. I don't know where we get that idea. Jesus wasn't broke. He took care of 12 teenage boys for three years. You know how much teenage boys eat? He had a treasurer. He had a treasurer. And the treasurer was skimming money off the top and nobody noticed. That's how much money was coming into Jesus' ministry. His garment was so well crafted that rather than split it up, they cast lots for it because they didn't want to like, tear this thing up. It was like, well, I'm not going to ruin this. this. This is amazing. You know? So they're like casting lots for his garment. Why? Because it was nice. There was at one point where he says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That wasn't an ongoing situation. That was kind of a one-time thing where it's like, well, I guess we're bunking outdoors tonight, guys. And so Jesus had uh, divine provision that flowed through him everywhere he went, but it wasn't fixated on it. Interestingly enough, even though he had access to all things, he didn't, he didn't go around paying everybody's bills. He knows how to disciple us. And he knows how to teach us to walk from a place of divine provision into a place of divine opportunity. Let me just give you this. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness, that's when this stuff showed up. It just showed up on the ground. Did you know when that quit? When they hit the promised land, which was the goal and the destiny. And in the promised land, they moved from having this supernatural divine provision to having supernatural divine opportunity. Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy is eight eighteen says, "Remember the Lord your God, for it is He who has given you the power to create wealth." That was where God was bringing the people into. And that is the divine provision that I have for you is I'm going to bring opportunities in front of you that are going to require you and I to partner together to see see if we can see the creativity of heaven begin to move through you into these opportunities so that through you, I'm going to bring the creation of wealth. God's teaching us how to actually access points of favor and opportunity in our life. We don't help anybody just by going out and writing a check and paying their bills. That's nice for a short period of time called the wilderness. When you see somebody's in the wilderness, yeah, you've got to pour some favor out upon them. But there comes a point in time where you start saying, God, I want to enter into the promise. I want to come into a place where you put opportunities in front of me. And can I tell you, oftentimes those opportunities will look so beyond your pay grade. In other words, God will put opportunities in front of you that will challenge your perception of your own qualifications because he knows what you're capable of. God puts opportunities, multiple opportunities in front of you. Some of you will have situations like this throughout the course of your life. As you grow and mature in God, he'll put multiple opportunities in front of you and you'll sit there and go, God, which one do I do? And you'll pray and he will say nothing. Because there comes a point in, in, in a father's heart and a father's life where he loves watching opportunities be put before his sons and daughters and then steps back and goes, what do you want to do? Let me bless what you choose. That is a beautiful point of maturity that every father looks forward to. So that's where God's bringing us into in this place of the promised land is he'll put opportunities that go beyond your qualifications in front of you and then say you pick and let me bless what you choose. That's a beautiful thing. I love that. It's part of being the family. So Jesus was a walking portal of divine provision everywhere he went. But to access that divine provision, whether it be healing, miracle, sign, wonder, required a person to put a demand upon what he was carrying. Now, understand, this is really an important point of ministry, and this will help a lot of you out, and you're sitting there going, well, if, if I knew I had the power to heal the sick, I'd go and empty out every hospital in town, right? You do have the power to heal the sick, but Jesus never went and emptied every hospital out that he, he came into. He walked through the city, and he just, he just took time to like, there's people in that city that are lost, and they're dying, but he's not walking with any sense of militant urgency. He's just like, hey, have you considered the lilies? Anybody seen the flowers? Check out the sparrows. They're amazing. I mean, he's like, you're thinking, wait a minute. You're God in the flesh. Why aren't you going around solving everybody's problems? But he doesn't. He just goes about doing what he's doing, and every now and then, somebody with a need, it's almost like, it's almost like their radar was on, and shoo, They knew he was the answer. A woman with the issue of blood, it appears that she was walking, she she was behind him like he was walking away from her. But he is drawing people that have need to put a demand upon the anointing that he's carrying. Blind Bartimaeus, he'd already walked by blind Bartimaeus. Jesus walked past a blind guy. And blind Bartimaeus calls out after Jesus. And Jesus turns around and does a very unchristian thing. He says to the blind guy, come here. <laughs> That's not compassion. What is that? <laughs> They're like, oh, he's blind. I'll go to him. It's okay. <clears throat> hey, blind guy, come here. <laughs> blind Bartimaeus, his cloak, that... Gave him the right to beg and to receive money as a beggar. He takes and tosses that cloak aside. That was his living. Without that cloak, he's going to starve to death. And all he did was he heard the voice, locked into the voice, knew what Jesus could do, chunks the cloak, and stumbles toward the voice. Jesus is just moving through life, doing life, and looking for people who cared enough to put a demand upon what he was carrying. Think about that. Think about that. Every person who came to him who had a need got healed. When you know who you are and you know what you carry, people around you will start putting a demand upon what you carry. So many times we have this sense, well, if I'm ministering and I'm going to go out, I'm going I'm I'm to go, I'm going to do, I'm going to... And we end up... Uh, We end up getting rejected, imposing ourselves upon people's lives. Listen, Jesus just went around just doing good and healing all who were oppressed, for God was with him, and everybody who came to him got healed. A hundred percent who came to him. What was he looking for? He was looking for enough hunger in people to put a demand upon what he was carrying. For some odd reason, that's what the compassion of God looked like, and that was just living life enticing people to a hunger. I don't know what you want to do with that, but for some of you, it should take all the pressure off to go out and try to, you know, beat the doors down trying to, like, win your city for Christ. Listen, just be salt and be light and watch how the desire of the nations in you starts drawing the hungry to you. I'm not saying have a complacent apathy, I'm saying have confidence in who you are and what you carry in God and watch how people begin to respond to it. Okay ever tell, have any of you guys ever heard the story of how I started doing this stuff? Okay. Let me tell you a story. Never talk about this, but for some reason, I think this will be edutainment tonight. Okay. So this this whole thing, people come up to me and go, Bill, how do you do this itinerant ministry? Like, how did you get out and start doing this? I have no idea, right? But I'll tell you how it happened. I was a pastor for a number of years. I was burnt out. I was kind of tired of doing ministry. I just, I, I just had no motivation to really do any of this stuff anymore. Um, it, pastoring is a very demotivating thing. Sometimes. Unless you're Tim, and he's just amazing. So, so I was just I was tired of it. I, was, I just didn't want to do it anymore. I wanted to go and do something that would actually make a living. I mean, I was just like, you know, I'm in debt. I'm, I, you know, I'm giving all my money away to the poor, I'm going and praying for people and nothing's happening. I'm just, I'm just really tired of this. And so uh, George Banoff called up and he says, um, can you help me put a conference together? I got Heidi Baker coming into town and we're going to do a thing in Austin. So I called some pastor friends of mine and, and so uh, they, they agreed to host the conference. And so uh, 1,600 people signed up for this conference and my job was to drive George's assistant, Rich Brink, to the event, to and from the event. That was it. I was just a driver. And so uh, on Friday afternoon during the conference, the afternoon speaker didn't show up. He missed his plane or something, and he wasn't able to make it to the conference. And Georgian looks at, at Rich and says, um, okay, our afternoon speaker, afternoon speaker's not going to make it. And so uh, he says, get Bill, get Bill to, to do the afternoon session, to start the afternoon session. When I get done with the partner's lunch, and then I'll come in and I'll just, you know, take it over. And so uh, he says uh, to, to, to Rich, says to George, and okay, sure, I'll, uh, you know, I'll. If uh, you, you talk to him, and George, says, oh yeah, I told him you might get in touch with him. So, so Rich didn't think anything of it. So on Friday afternoon, five minutes before the session's supposed to start, my phone rings. I wasn't even planning on attending the afternoon session because I know nothing about any of this. And my phone rings, and Rich says, uh, Bill, where are you? And I said, I'm having barbecue with a friend. And he goes. We need you here. Like, you, you need to be here. Like, And I go, oh, okay. Like, didn't Georgian talk to you? And I'm thinking, no, but okay, whatever. So I show up, and, uh, you know, here, there, it's like 1,500 people in the room, and I'm stepping over bodies, and the worship's going on, and I walk up to the front, and I've never done anything like this before. I mean, I don't know what's going on here. I look at Rich, and Rich goes, oh, good, you're here. So um, when they're done with the worship, then I'm just going to hand it off to you, and you've got it until, oh, like four o'clock, like a couple hours. I'm like, what? So I turn to somebody next to me and I say, hey, what's this uh, session about? And said, oh, it's uh, prophetic ministry. Okay. So. <clears throat> I thought to myself, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? This is, this is going to be a train wreck. This is horrible. So I grabbed somebody that I knew and I said, look, you've got to help me. Um, I found out like five minutes ago I'm doing this session. I said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. Let's just grab some people out of the audience and get them up and give them some guidelines and we'll have them do some prophetic ministry. And, and we'd never seen or done anything like that, similar to what we did last night. We'd never seen that, never done it. never I'd never experienced that. But I thought, hey, if, if this, this, this goes south, I'm going to have like 30 people on stage with me. We're all going down together, right? So, so I got up and I just mentioned 10 minutes worth of scriptures that I could think of about prophetic ministry. And, and so then I start, we started picking people out of the crowd. One of the guys we picked was a guy named Will. He played football for the Detroit Lions, but he had messed his knee up. And when we picked him out of the crowd he gets up and he starts walking toward the front and his knee gets totally healed and he starts like doing this thing and like dancing around he, his his injury was so bad it, it completely ended his football career and so now he's like dancing around and i go what's going on he's like i haven't taken a step in 3 years without pain he says i think i think my knee just got healed so i said anybody got knee problems in the room I said come up and just over here will's going to pray for you I don't know that Will has never done anything like this before. He got drugged there by a friend and he has no idea what's going on. Right? He didn't even know how to pray for somebody. So now I got Will over here who doesn't even know the Lord and he's like on a ministry. He's like leading a ministry now. So he's got... 45 people over there, so he doesn't know how to pray for people. All he knows is as he started moving, his knee guy healed. So, next thing I know, he's got people over there doing jumping jacks and all kinds of stuff. It's like, a, it's like an exercise class over here. Um, somebody else gives a prophetic word um, that you know, God, that, that, you know, talked about you know, dental miracles, right? Somebody gives this prophetic word about like if you've got bad teeth, God's like healing and restoring teeth right now. And so uh, this, this little old lady gets this whole grill of gold teeth. People were snapping pictures in her mouth. It was the freakiest looking thing. It was, it was like, it was hilarious. It was like gangsta granny over here is here. She's got a crowd. We got all these people over here doing jumping jacks. This one guy up in the front who's never prophesied before says, my hand feels like it's on fire. And I said, well, give it away. I didn't know what, the, I just felt like he would just like say a word over somebody. And he goes, fire. And he does it. And people like fly back over their chairs knocking chairs down and he's shocked he can't believe this so he's more and more it's like, <laughs> so about that time I look over at Will and I say what's going on Will and he goes they're getting healed and I go how many and he goes all of them so they start running around the sanctuary. Now we've got like 50 people running around the sanctuary, rejoicing over their good knees. i got Gangsta Granny in the corner, and i got people, this guy like throwing fireballs, laying, pe- laying people out all over. And I'm standing up there going, I, I can't even like wrap my mind around what's going on. And it's to that that Georgian walks in the back, and he looks around and goes, oh, this is what I've always wanted for the afternoon sessions. So... This is what I've always wanted. He comes up to me and goes, he goes, uh, where's uh, Bill Hart? Now, Bill Hart was the pastor who was hosting the meeting. And when Georgian had talked to Rich and said, get Bill to do the afternoon session... (laughs) I was the wrong bill. Oh, that is so awesome! So that's when we realized there was a major mix-up here. But Georgian goes, "This is what I've been praying for. We've been wanting this for an afternoon sessions." He goes, "Can you do it again tomorrow?" I said, "George, I don't even know what I did today." He says, doesn't matter, come do it again, do it again. So the next day, it was even crazier, off the chains crazy. Uh, people invited friends, they were like, you got to see this. This is just like crazy, going off the rails. We had a lady that came in in a wheelchair, and they picked up the wheelchair and started like carrying it around the church, like a, like a bar mitzvah or something. Anyway, she ended up getting out of the wheelchair. It was crazy, wild, amazing stuff going on. So after that, Georgian says to me, you know, what are you doing for the rest of your life? <laughs> so we've got a meeting like next week in Tampa. Can you come? We got one after that down in Miami and we're going to be in Boston, all this stuff for the next couple of years. I basically went on the road with Georgian and we just saw that replicated over and over again. So every time I would go to a meeting like Firestorm where I met you guys, people would come up and go, hey, can, you, can, you, can you come to our church and teach? And over the course of the years, I realized that there was a famine for, for teaching in the body of Christ that would take people into what I would call a resurrected lifestyle. And, and so that's what we've been privileged to do. But there's something about this. You talk about like, how, how, do, I, how do I get to a place where, where people start putting demand upon the anointing that I carry? The first thing you have to do is realize who you are. Realize that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form and in him you have been made complete. God fully, 100%, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has chosen to take up residence in you and he brought all of his kingdom and all of his power and all of his heaven with him into you. Heaven is closer than you think. When you begin to awaken to the awareness of who you really are, the desire of the nations in you will make himself attractive to those who have a hunger for it. All right, so... That was for somebody in here. So Jesus, divine provision, he's bringing, he's bringing every, every situation he encounters that has the, the fingerprints of death, loss, or destruction on it, he, he's bringing life into the situation. He releases spirit and life. He comes into um, uh, Lazarus' funeral to resurrect Lazarus from the dead, but before he does, he weeps with those who are hurting. That's an amazing thing about our God is that he steps into that place of loss and pain with us and somehow walks us out of the valley of the shadow of death. He enters into the valley of the shadow of death with us to walk us through a process of coming to an awareness that death is nothing but a shadow. The law, he is the word made flesh and dwelt among us. Mercy seat, wow. He is the literal mercy seat of God. Why don't you picture something with me? Let's say that a priest walked into the Holy of Holies, went behind the veil. They spent their entire life preparing for this one moment. Once a year, a priest goes behind the veil before the ark and sprinkles blood on the mercy seat on behalf of the entire people, the entire nation, and God forgives the sins of the entire nation in one shot for the whole year. Pretty good deal. It's a lot of grace there. Um, Think about this. I wonder if any priest ever walked up to the ark looked around to make sure that there was nobody watching, and sat up on the mercy seat, dangling their feet, just enjoying the Shekinah glory of God, moving in and all all around them. I don't think any priest ever did that. I mean, that would have been crazy. No priest would have ever thought to do that. (laughs) You would, yes. When Jesus, every time he sits down, Jesus, a living embodiment of the ark. Every time he sits down, his lap is full of kids. This tells us a lot about the nature of what Christ was like. A lot of fun to be with. I've never seen a kid want to sit on the lap of a grouch yet. But every time Jesus sits down, his lap is full of kids. At one point, the disciples say, get get away, stop it. And Jesus goes, whoa, 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 let the kids come to me. Let the children come. The kingdom of God belongs to them. So, a matter of fact, unless you become like this, you can't even see the kingdom. Jesus pulls these children up onto his lap. Do you understand what these kids were doing? They were doing something the priests would have never dared to do. And that is, they were sitting on the literal mercy seat of God but they're not dying. He's blessing them and he's embracing them and he's loving them. Jesus Christ, the embodiment of the ark. The ark where the presence of God dwelt. Jesus Christ, living embodiment of the ark. And now according to Colossians 1.27 the mystery of the gospel Christ in Christ in you, the hope of glory, united with Christ. So this, think of all the power that the ark had. Think of all of the, just the the might and the power that the ark had. Think of all the might and the power that Jesus had. Think of all of that, that glory, that might, that power, that majesty, now lives in you. Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit taking up residence in you. See, the reason that Jesus took the physical ark out of the way and even took the physical ark of his own body out of the way is so that you and I will get the revelation that now we are the ark. Jesus actually said, it's better for you or it's good for you that I go away. If I go away, I'll send the spirit of truth, the helper, Into you, the spirit that is with you will be in you. What is he doing? He's removing out of the way any distance or separation between us and the glory of God to bring us to a place where he always wanted the children to be, his kids to be, and that is with him as kings and priests unto God. And you say, wait a minute, I'm not worthy of that to have face to face relationship with God. In Christ, now under the new covenant, you are a king at royal identity, and you're a priest, one who has face to face access with God. It means that you, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, now in the earth today, you are the Ark of the Covenant. Wow, awesome. Boom. We're just getting started. <laughs> it's cool. It's like, what? It is mind-blowing good. Uh, what is this thing of the glory? Now, well, Exodus, if you want to take in your Bibles and turn to Exodus thirty-three, eighteen. 18. Moses goes to the mountain three times. And on this occasion, he asks God, show me your glory. I said this last night and uh, bears repeating. God's response to Moses is I'm going to make all of my goodness to pass before you. So the glory of God is equal to or synonymous with the goodness of God. Now People say, wait a minute, where's the glory of God? The Bible says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The revelation knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the water covers the sea. That doesn't mean that suddenly a cloud will appear all around the earth with Jesus' culture music playing out of it, okay? (laughs) You know, messages by Tim and Bill Johnson and guys like, you know, all just sort of like permeating the atmosphere. That's not what it means. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21 says, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you could ask or think. Now think about this. Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you could ask, that's beyond the reach of your wildest prayer. And beyond all that you could think, that's beyond the reach of your wildest imagination. That's why I say God is always better than you think. It's in the Bible. It's not what I made up. It's Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who's able to go beyond your wildest prayer and go beyond your wildest imagination, we think, wow, that's so far outside of me. But then the next line is, according to the power that works in you. So work with, this, with me here. God is wanting to go beyond you, but he's going to do it from within you. In other words, you're bigger on the inside than you are on the outside. And he wants to expand your capacity to see what's possible if you surrender and live that life of just surrendered existence to where invading impossibilities becomes the byproduct of a surrendered existence to the presence of God in you. He's going to go beyond you, but he's going to do it from within you. I don't understand that. I just know there's life on it, okay? It's like, wow. That's cool. Now to him who's able to do exceeding, abundant, beyond all you could ask, beyond all you could think, according to the power at work in you. Next line goes like this. To him be glory in the church. And you say, wait, 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 wait a minute. But The Bible says God will not give his glory to another. That's true, but that doesn't apply to you because you're not another. If any man be in Christ... He is a new creation. The old things are passed away and the, all things have become new. You in Christ united together. You're not another. It's actually spiritually illegal for you to say that I'm not glorious and at the same breath say Jesus lives in me. Because when the glorious one came and took up residence in you, he brought all of his glory with him. And so when we say that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord is the goodness of God. Where is the glory of the Lord manifesting? In you. You are the glory of God in the earth today. Why? Because you're the ark. Christ in you, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word hope literally means the joyful, expectation of goodness glory the manifest presence of God so the mystery of the gospel is Christ in you the joyful expectation of the manifest goodness of God that doesn't light your fire your woods wet (laughs) No. <laughs>